Welcome to the second reading podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of August 23rd, 2021. I'm Jim Henson, Director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin, and happy to be joined again today by Josh Blank, Research and Polling Director for the same Texas Politics Project. Howdy. So, Josh, there's a lot going on, kind of. I guess. Yeah, geez. (laughs) I don't know. It's it's a long list. It's a laundry list of things going on. Well, I think for the last couple of times that we've done this, we're kind of tracking public opinion and the rise of the pandemic and its impact on people and policy and politics in the state. And I think for for the last- shouldn't, Shouldn't somebody- yeah, good one. So for the last <laughs> few weeks, we, um, you know, we've kind of said, well, you know, well, and there's also all this stuff going on in the legislature, but they were kind of stalled out because of the Democratic quorum break. And I think a couple of times we stopped to talk a little bit about filling in, you know, some of the blanks there and talking about some of the, some aspects of that. But, you know, here we are, uh, the legislature appears to be back in business uh, after the end of the Democratic quorum break that had paralyzed the legislature for the entirety of the first special session called by Governor Abbott uh, immediately upon the end of the regular session and and which carried into the first couple of weeks of the second special session called also called, of course, by the governor, you know, as Democrats seemed to, as a group, be trying to figure out whether there was a shared strategy and if so, what it was. Um, I think they're still trying to figure that out. Yeah, a state that is continuing. (laughs) So, um, you know, at the end of last week, enough Democrats came back to the floor of the House to for the House to barely make a quorum you know, though it's a matter of dispute among some some Democrats and progressives, but the trains left the station. So we're going to set that dispute aside only, you know, to note that, you know, the, the threshold was even lowered by a member because there are two vacancies in the House for, for various reasons right now. Um, but making a slightly reduced quorum was enough to enable the House majority to refer bills to committee and to start the process of addressing some of the the agenda items that were on Governor Abbott's special session call, though, you know, with only two weeks left in the session, it's unlikely they're going to get to everything. Well, I will, you know, note given, you know, the pace and the agendas and the speed with which the committees are meeting and going through their agendas, they're going to give it the college try. Not that everybody believes in college is good. Don't get yeah. me wrong. So say, yeah, um, if the college try means 40 minutes of testimony. As opposed yeah, to for like- example. So, you know, on Monday, you know, and then in terms of the politics of this, on, on Monday of, of this week, more Democrats returned, you know, which, you know, making it look in some ways as if the Democrats' efforts to derail or or delay the process, at least at the state level, was played out. Now, to be fair, there, there was always a national political play at work here. And I, you know, we'll come back to that. But, 
you know, I mean, in terms of seeing where the legislature is right now, the most telling thing is that the catalyst for the quorum break, the Republican sponsored voting bill is moving and and moving with due speed, it seems to me. The the House version of the bill, which differs slightly from the Senate version, um, passed out of committee late Monday. It's expected to go to the floor after what I would expect to be a very brief stop in the calendars committee. Um, like it probably shouldn't even take off its shoes, that bill. It's no, going to, it's, like it's going to go in there and then get ushered out. It's like a rolling stop maybe. So we, yeah. So we think that that's going to be no later than next week, but there's a bunch else on the agenda, right? That also seems to be moving. That's right. I mean, I think, you know, we've, we've sort of hinted at this before and I think we'll probably talk about it a little bit today, but I mean, it's not as though the voting bill is the only thing on the special session call. Obviously, if you're listening to this, you know that, but I mean, the politics of it are all pointing in the same direction, which is that in addition to the voting bill, which the Democrats have, you know, again, were willing to leave their homes in the state for months on end to derail. There's also a bunch of other stuff that, you know, this is, is probably, you know, equally or very close to equally as distasteful to Democrats of that. So, you know, we're talking about big increase in border security spending, you know, strict regulation of what teams transgender kids can play for or try out for should they want to. Uh, you know, still more limitations on abortion, you know, still more legislation talking about, you know, curriculum to relate to the teaching of racism. So there's, you know, and I don't, that's, I think that's all of it. It's hard to tell with, you know, within the, the, the broad confines of special session calls. I mean, I think there's a couple other things on there that, that for sure Democrats are not pleased about addressing. Yeah. Like, like changing the quorum breaking rules. Well, they <laughs> so. won't, well, that'll never happen. I mean, you know, we'll see. I mean, I, that seems pretty unlikely to happen, but I mean, I would say more so, I mean, the thing that I think of is, you know, there's something in there that I think is probably, uh, the shell for limiting the ability to to have for, of cities to require paid sick leave, right? Things like that. So there's there's plenty not to like if you're a Democrat coming back. Yeah, and I, I think um, you know to foreshadow where you know something else we'll we'll hit on. You know there are a lot of things that that Democrats don't like, but I think what's interesting is that not all Democrats dislike all of those things with the same intensity, and that's. That's causing some friction right now, uh, which we'll get to. But, but for now, I mean, in terms of thinking about, you know, where where things stand for the Democrats. I mean, critics of the Democrats. I mean, you know, Republicans with a certain amount of Schadenfreude, but even Democratic, you know, critics. Who, of course, there are always many because. You know, that's the nature of the Democrats, internal critics. Yeah. yeah. You know, are saying, you know, did this make any difference? And you know. The Democrats have an answer. I, you know, how persuasive do you think it is? Well, I think. Well, let's look at. The, I guess we, should, you know, to be fair, look at the answer. Give them. Okay. Well, give them was, a fair, a fair shake. Right. So, so the answer, as far as I, I read it, and I think the point that you're making is there's no one answer first and foremost, right? Because there, there are different Democrats who are sort of saying different, who are wrapping what they've done in different packages. So, but I mean, they sort of tend to center on a couple couple sets of arguments is one, you know, this drew a lot of national attention. And I think I've heard, you know, some say it actually reset the national conversation. Essentially by Democrats going to Washington, it wasn't just even about Texas. It was about making sure that there was a face to to Republican efforts to limit voting access across a lot of states. Texas is a big state. It was a dramatic act on TV a lot, on cable news a lot, clearly drew attention, you know, in a way that was not just about Texas. Same time, drew a lot of attention in Texas. I mean, this is what a lot of the news coverage around politics has been really focused on over the last, 
you know, month and a half. Uh, and I would say Republicans have spent much of the last month and a half really trying to reframe the debate around the, the voting and election bill because of all that attention. So um, really, it's, which is actually further, you know, led to more attention. Um, you know, I would say additionally, you know, it has run down some of the clock. I mean, you know, the governor has has promised to call multiple special sessions until, you know, his priorities are passed. Now, it's not clear how many of his priorities are his like 1A priorities and how many are kind of like 1B, 1C and 2 that we could maybe not deal with until the next time. But there's, you know, there are some, I wouldn't say, you know, I would say there's a reasonably hard deadline coming up and it's called the election and redistricting is a big part of that. So ultimately, you know, there are only two weeks left in the second called special session. That's going to limit how much they can do within that time period. The House is not the Senate. Even if they move stuff through committee really quickly, they're still going to have delays in getting this stuff worked out because, you know, they're a rowdy bunch and because they just have more rules they have to follow, but also redistricting is coming up and that's going to take a lot of time and attention. And I'm not sure that they're going to want to be dealing with the internal politics of redistricting along with the nastiness of all this other stuff at the exact same time. So I think there are some things that they've accomplished, I would say, in that sense. That would be sort of the argument, I think. Is that yeah, I'm right? Trying, I, I'm sitting here Am I missing to something? Just, I mean, I think it's funny that, I mean, because I... It, this is only now sort of occurring to me, not really. That's, but I mean, I, I think that Democrats all along have said that this was taking an ethical and moral stand that would be important to their constituents, whether they won or lost. And I, I think it's fair to mention that, whether it's, you know, whether they've achieved that or not. I think, you know, again, with all of these, I think all of these are kind of arguable yeah. in terms of, you know, the... I mean, there was definitely a, a kind of call and response that went on between the Republicans and, or I'm sorry, between the Democrats that left and the governor and other Republicans, but particularly the governor, that in some ways just definitely kind of got out of hand. Yeah, you know, you know, in the me, sense me, of you know, in, in the sense of the governor deciding to veto the legislative such an you know the the legislative yeah. article of the budget and picking a fight with. You know, seemingly unnecessary, unnecessarily with potentially, you know, the entire legislature, certainly with the House. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, there was something about provoking your enemy when you're maybe at Sun Tzu or somebody about provoking your enemy when you're weak. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. one might argue that they got some short term gain out of that. But I, you know, you're. So if you're asking if there's other things that I could put well, on the list, if I was gonna, well, if I was going to make the case, I you know, and, and if I don't sound persuaded, it's because I'm not entirely. But well, no, I, it's, but it's nonetheless, funny. I, I think it's fair to mention a couple of those things. No, it's funny. I'm mean, sitting here thinking how how you know cynical I am, sitting here saying, oh well, and also their constituents hate it, so they're representing their constituents. Yeah. of course, yeah, of course that too. But, no, know, well, and I and I think that's, and, and, that's, and I think, but that's right. I mean, that's important. and I'm kind of yeah, and, I, and I'm kind of lining up for where I want to go next a little bit because. I think that was true, but I think that's also fed some unintended consequences given the fact that it's ending up the way it is. So, you know, one of the un big unintended consequences is that, you know, if we focus on the House again, since that's where we're all focused right now, I mean, the Senate hasn't, I don't remember when the last time the Senate met was because they passed all the bills and, and got, they actually are getting a little bit of summer. Yeah, they're out of Lake Austin right now. So, um, well, I don't know. I guess it's. I guess it still smells enough like liberty out there to, to enjoy yourself. But um, you know, one of the unintended consequences is this has really added additional kind of 
you know, fishing more fissures and there's more fracturing in a house that was already fractured. And I don't even mean, you know, just between Democrats or Republicans. I mean, it's kind of all over the place in the sense that, you know, on, on one hand, you know, we've seen as much uh, nasty public infighting among Democrats in the House mm-hmm. as yeah, I've seen in a long time. Uh, you know, I mean, look, this stuff is all, you know, there's always a degree of this stuff going on in the background and, you know, you know, the, somebody punching somebody out in a caucus or something like this, but, but the kind of public, uh, criticism of the Democrats that came back mm-hmm. by Democrats that, that weren't, didn't approve of that tactic was very direct. And, and it's now picked up among some of these Democrat, you know, some some Democratic interest groups, you know, and that's kind of you know what I was alluding to when we talked about, you know, a lot of the other issues on the agenda are important to Democratic constituencies, but they're not of equal importance, and that's really coming out in terms of some of the criticism that the the Democrats who were in the first wave or two of returning to the House are receiving. Now, look, this is on social media. We'll see if you know people put their money or their candidates, their, their, their primary challenges where their mouths are on Twitter. But I, I'm, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of pre-registered candidates. Jeff Blaylock's Texas elections, Texas election source, you know, was mentioning that they're the cheat sheet that they're compiling where they compile everybody, you know, who is expressing direct interest or is registered, um, you know, has a lot of entries (laughs) and it's on both sides. Yeah, and it's interesting in in the sense that I mean, I, you know, I think we're kind of we're used to the what we often refer to as the dissident right, you yeah. know, the the out of power, you know, I mean, this is you know, it's an important part of this conversation. But we'll set aside for a second, but the out of power Republicans who are criticizing Republicans within the process, no matter how much they do for not doing enough, and this sort of national conversation, you know, sort of, you know, with the the, the figurehead being you know Alexandria Ocasio Cortez of New York, and this idea of, uh, you know primary challenges of moderate Democrats from, from progressive Democrats and sort of, you know, the fissures yeah. that creates and particularly, you know, this has been more sort of in the Northeast uh, and some other places. We haven't really seen it too much in Texas, a little bit, Jessica Cisneros yeah. down there in Congress, but, but not a lot. And, you know, you wonder, you know, is this going to be the catalyst for more of that? And, you know, this is one of the many questions that kind of remains to be seen, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And that, you know, that, yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at that, you know, I mean, it's it's kind of broken out in the open in a way that it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. And, you know, this is, you know, and, and, and we're also seeing this in terms of the kind of institutional far right contention mm-hmm. uh, in the Republican caucus and between, you know, kind of dissident conservatives in the house or, you know, dissident might even be wrong in this, you know, militant conservatives in the house and the speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for those that were watching, you know, the House floor yesterday, uh, you know, some of the most, you know, th- three or four of the most conservative Republicans were at the back mic doing their best to, uh, you know, spoil the moment for Speaker Phelan, I think, in a certain way, mm-hmm. you know, standing back and, you know, calling up, making parliamentary inquiry after parliamentary inquiry because they want to get to punishing the Democrats, they say right away, or at least they want to demonstrate their will to do so on camera. Now, those things are not mutually exclusive, mm-hmm. 
but clearly this went from okay, we've got a quorum, we're going to get we're going to get some business done. We've worn the Democrats out their back to, you know, the the Republicans and the you know the Republican backbenchers giving the speaker a hard time about not being tough enough on them. Mm-hmm. And letting so them, you know, letting, them, letting them get away with it. Yeah, and that's kind of why I call it. You know, talking about fragmentation. That that's you know, it's not just you know the opening up of you know just you know the Democrat. You know, the this. Fisher, as you say, is similar to the national division between, you know, that we're seeing in democratic politics Mm -hmm. uh, at the national level in Congress, but also among Republicans. But, you know, you and I, we've we've talked a bit recently and been digging around on some of the backdrop to this, right? Which, you know, doesn't explain all the institutional fighting, you know, that has to do with institutional design and politics, but the ideological, you know, kind of polarization of the parties in the state has a kind of interesting character that shows up in our polling, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that, that I would, you know, say if I'm just describing the right for a second before I jump to the left, you know, if you're thinking about sort of conservatism in the state, you know, I would say the, the consistency of the conservative identification among Republicans is, is just a notable feature of Texas public opinion. And really what's kind of shifted is not, you know, I would say the opinions of Republicans in the state, but it's actually the policy, right? And I've been saying this a lot actually recently, which is that as you get more and more conservative policy, you know, the only way to satisfy conservative impulses is with still yet more conservative policy. And so we're starting to see some interesting, you know, I would say light divisions on the right, but it doesn't really compare to what we see in some ways on the left. And it's not about divisions, but it's about you know, sort of, I think a shift in attitudes in Texas that's sort of notable, and it really happened over the course of the Trump presidency, where when we asked Democrats, you know, how do I ident- how they identify ideologically, you know, unsurprisingly, this is Texas. It wasn't like you know they were all jumping up and down, screaming, "Oh, we're progressives, we're liberals," you know, move the state to the left. But over the Trump presidency, there was a, a polarization uh, of Democrats, and you saw a lot less, a lot much, many fewer Democrats were willing to identify as moderates. Many more were willing to identify as liberals, and that has maintained itself into the beginning of the Biden presidency. And we ask a question kind of directly, which is we say, you know, to, to Democrats, you know, are, are Democratic – so we only ask the Democrats as we ask Republicans the inverse question. But for Democrats, we say, you know, are Democratic politicians in Texas, you know, basically liberal enough, too liberal or not liberal enough? And at this point, the plurality of Texas Democrats, or I'm sorry, back in 2017, 40% of Texas Democrats said that they were liberal enough. Uh, 36% said not liberal enough. Today, it was 33% say liberal enough in April 21. So that's a drop of seven points. The share who said that they're not liberal enough uh, increased a few points. And it, you know, and I guess 9% say too liberal now. 19% say don't know. Right. And so we're kind of shifting a little bit and you're seeing these sort of these sort of yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think to you know to put a sharp, you know, the sharpen that point. I sharpen mean, it. basically, it went from, you know, a, a pretty clear plurality saying that Texas, you know, but but still not not an absolute majority, forty percent. Right. When forty percent say you're liberal enough, and that's the most frequent response, you know, you get the sense that the you know that there's there's some stability in there, but you know that dropped by seven points in that period. Mm-hmm. And most of the migration went to not liberal enough, even though a few went to too liberal, which suggests that there are, you know, the gravity is shifting, but it's not, it's not, a, it's not a wholesale rush. I mean, it's just not a big tilt, you know, that you're, you know, as you're seeing the, you know, 
the kind of delayed following of the state Democratic Party and the National Democratic Party direction to oversimplify just a little. Um, it's not surprising that we're seeing this kind of friction a little bit more, yeah. particularly as the other party moves farther to the right. And it makes sense in the historical sweep too, right? I mean, yeah. Democrats become more competitive here and they're becoming more competitive, you know, really on the backs of, of younger, you know, more diverse and more urban, you know, urban living voters in right. the state, you know, you're bringing new voters into a party. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago at a Tribune festival, and this is a story I'm telling through, I'm actually telling your story. So it'll just, oh, good. you know, Perfect. You, were at the tri- you were at a Tribune festival event with somebody, I won't say who you can decide if you want to, is a, a well-known political commentator who basically was sort of saying, hey, look, the only way the Texas Democrats are going to, you know, be successful, I think this was in 2018, maybe, is if they can appeal to moderate whites again. And this has been a, you know, this was sort of a discussion yeah. in the party for a number of years was, okay, you know, the Democrats, they've got this, they've got this, you know, difficult, you know, choice here. I mean, it's almost a Sophie choice. Like, well, we can go try to get the moderate whites, but then we're not going to have the progressive young people and the people of color. It's like, well, or we could focus on progressives and, and people of color, but we're not going to have the moderate whites. And that decision, I think, has been made at this point. But I think what, but that decision has been made with a certain, well, to some, for, I would say at a, at a statewide level, probably. But it has the effect that it creates that friction where you do see people saying, nope, too liberal. Well, you know what's interesting about that? It's funny you would say the decision being made because I, well, as you tell that story, which, you know, I love being peripheral, having a walk on roll in, but um, <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a funny piece to that, which is that, you know, I, I think that discussion is still pretty active behind the scenes, even if the policy thrust that we see from elected officials is, you know, is, as you describe it, I think more clearly, you know, more, more to the left, more liberal, more progressive, whatever. But there's a piece of that that's really interesting, which is, have we really seen the litmus test of that until we have more statewide Democrats who are really in, you know, the push comes to shove position of having to balance those those constituencies and balance those those impulses. I don't think we're ever going to find that litmus test. And I'll tell you why is because, because the Democrats are never going to win again. No, because no Democrat <laughs> is going to win. No, no, no. I mean, I, no, I mean, I think it's, it's partially that. But I mean, no, because no Democrat is going to win. By appealing, you know, as as a moderate at this point, I, mean, I think we've well, seen. Well, but you know, I mean, but, you know, what I just said, people seen, win running one way and then govern another way. That that, that has yeah, been known no, to but the, but, this, but there's a specific technical reason I mean that. I don't mean that it's not possible. I mean, I think we've seen a lot of we've seen a lot of you know, let's say older school, you know, usually white male Democratic politicians run for statewide office, or at least I'll say try to get the nomination to run for statewide office over the last 10 years with with pretty limited success if there's competition. I think the issue is, is I don't think you can run as a moderate Democrat appealing to sort of, you know, the moderate white voters in the state and get the kind of funding you need to be competitive in that position. I think yeah, at this I point, mean, the, I, the, the, the money is behind the progressive candidate. So I think that's where I would see it being difficult to imagine how it happens from a technical standpoint. Yeah. I, you know, I'd have to think about that a little bit more. Um, well, I just, I just, I just thought of it and just said it. So I mean, I think it depends, I might be wrong. it depends a little bit on, you know, how you sort of understand, you know, who the key, I mean, look, the candidates are going to matter, you know, oh. to some degree, but also, you know, where, where that money is coming from. I mean, I think one thing that's interesting about that is that it does, I mean, what's, you know, something that buttresses that argument is that 
it's likely that no Democratic candidate is going to be the breakthrough candidate here without outside money. Mm-hmm. Right. And that outside money is likely to be more liberal. Yeah. But there are also, you know, interesting questions about the kind of, you know, the political economy of, of raising money as a Democrat, you know, within the universe of Democratic voters. And that's like not. And so, I mean, I think I think part of what I've always been unpersuaded by, by the, you know, we got to appeal to those moderate white voters. I mean, I, I don't think there are that many of those moderate white voters. I think white voters are probably, you know, we should well, look at this, you know, as closely polarized as our, well, and, well, you know, also, everyone else. Um, but it also, ref- I mean, but it also just, it's, it, it's just, it sort of assumes that the Democrats are already competitive and that they're solid with their base and that they can just appeal to kind of the, the, the voters that they need to get them across the finish line. But we know from our own polling, we know from exit polling, the majority of Democratic voters in Texas are people of color. They're women. Uh, and that, you know, and that kind of makes up, I, again, that makes up the majority. And then you have about, you know, probably about a third who are, you know, white liberals and then a mixture of the rest. So make up probably about the other 20%. Well, it- and, and so, let me complicate that factor with one more thing, which is that if you think about, you know, and again, this is not true on all issues, but on many, you know, take, for example, the police issue, the policing issue, you know, the white liberals in the party are, as a group, tend to be in on many issues more liberal than are the Hispanic and black voters. They tend certainly, to be a, certainly than the Hispanic voters. If they're if their interest is in winning elections, they tend to be a little bit out over their skis. So. You know, so. so that that's another that's another piece here. So we should wind this up because we're running out of time. But I mean, I, I think to go back then to circle back then to where the Democrats are. I mean, I think you know the state of play for Democrats' hopes of having something to show for this. Mm-hmm. I think are still in the hands to some degree. You know, in the final analysis of what's going to happen in Washington, because you know they're going to be able to make the argument that they moderated the voting bill, which is going to pass. Mm-hmm. But there's still going to be some things in there that Democratic constituencies are going to hate, particularly those that are focused on elections and and voting law. Um, You know, there is not there is nothing in this bill that is going to make Progress Texas or the Texas Civil Rights Project feel like, you know, they really like brought home the bacon on this. Right. I mean, I mean, I think, you know, not to say that those people are unreasonable, they will recognize that the bill could have was worse in its first instantiation back in mid-May or mid and that's, to and that's late the, May. And that's, that's the new argument now that I think is kind of – Yeah, yeah, right. No, and I, I think that's what – and it's, it's, it's good that that's the new argument because that's what they got. Um, right. <laughs> but, you know, as we speak, uh, you know, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi are trying to get the – are trying to move the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, mm-hmm. which would then give, you know, a new set of legal tools, at least as written now – to Texas Democrats to to challenge laws like this, like they used to be able to prior to Roberts Court's decisions that gutted the Voting Rights Act. So I think that's hovering out there, but that's also, you know, I don't know how much you've been following the national stuff, but, um, you know, there has been some brutal fighting going on inside the Democratic caucus at the national level. You know, the latest reporting today seemed to be that that the speaker had once again gained the upper hand as a lot of the insiders had kind of predicted she would. Um, interesting, interestingly enough, uh, the big meeting that was being held today was not being held in the speaker's office. It was being held in Steny Hoyer's office, who is, you know, the second ranking Democrat behind 
uh, Speaker Pelosi at one time, a contender to be speaker, a competitor, um, but also by his nature, a, a much more moderate Democrat, even though he's been you know a team player for the Democrats and all this, not to, to be confused about that. But I think it's telling that his good offices are being used for the final negotiations, hammering this out. Now, the, the immediate thing is the relationship between the big spending bill and um, the infrastructure bill. But the voting rights voting rights legislation got wrapped into that as a way of them trying to put pressure on the moderates, which I thought was politically very admirable and smart and, you know, especially ruthless, which I kind of admired. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we kind of we need to watch that because it's hard, you know, to look at where we are now and think that this session is going to end without them passing that voting bill and, you know, without, you know, some, some Republicans are out for some blood. And I mm-hmm. think that, you know, in the, in the Texas house, and I think they're, there's going to have, you know, so, someone's going to have to pay a price and it's going to be interesting to see who they are. You know, as you and I have talked about, you know, a lot of the people that broke away early from, the democratic resistance were people that were closer to management in the house mm-hmm. and had more to use people that had chairmanships, people that had positions or people that had been part of the, the effort to get feeling elected speaker instead of another Republican. And I think we have not seen all of the politics of that play out yet. I doubt it, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so the next couple of weeks will be, will be very interesting to see how that develops. We are at, couple minutes past 30 minutes, so I'm going to thank Josh, thank our folks in the Liberal Arts Development Studio in the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, we talked about a lot of data today. I urge you to look at uh, the data we talked about and, and much more at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. And so thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.